Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I never will forget this crying. In faith I'll trust it all my days. And when o'er all my sins I'm sighing, into the Father's heart I'll gaze. For there is always to be found free mercy without end and bound. Amen. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Our Father is merciful. We know this because we know Jesus. He who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. We have what is better than seeing. We have his promise to be with us always. We don't see him from afar. Rather, we know him is always near. No matter how blinded we are by reason and human wisdom, to say nothing of our sin and iniquity and many errors, yet we have Jesus with us and for us and still speaking to us if we listen in earnest to his word. He teaches what saves us. He teaches us what we must be saved from. He feeds us with what gives us peace and everlasting life and tells us not to work for the bread that perishes. In his light, we see light, the Bible says. His word is a light to our feet. Yes, we have something better than seeing. We have the way, the truth, and the life because we have Jesus. We know him by faith. No one comes to the Father except through him. This dear Savior of ours, who shows mercy to us and tells us in our gospel lesson today also to be merciful, this dear Savior of ours teaches us everything we need to know about mercy. Now those who reject mercy go to hell. Those who accept mercy go to heaven. To accept mercy is to receive it. To accept mercy is also to show it, because to accept mercy is to have it. We are saved by receiving it. Those who are saved also show it. He who accepts mercy shows mercy because he loves mercy. Jesus tells us to be merciful. If we will be saved, we need mercy. If we are saved, we show mercy. We need to receive mercy in order to show mercy. Jesus tells us to be merciful. If you want a picture of divine mercy, there is nowhere better to look than last Sunday's gospel lesson from Luke chapter 15. We read the entirety last week. Jesus depicts himself as a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in the wilderness who need no finding and seeks out and finds his one lost sheep. He depicts himself as the devoted woman who sweeps her house clean to find her one lost coin. Jesus depicts himself as the loving father who waits for his rebellious son to return after coming to his senses. And when he comes back, he welcomes him home and honors him and pleads with all who are in his house to echo the joy in heaven that this one son of his was dead and now lives. This is mercy. It is pure mercy. 
Jesus calls it repentance. And yet all he describes is what he himself does in mercy toward those who themselves can do nothing to earn mercy. Our repentance is God's work alone. So far, we have reviewed the main lesson we learned last week, but it is worth repeating and reviewing. Today, we continue from here to consider the command to imitate this mercy that we have been shown and taught to love. Repentance is God's work in us. Today, we learn how and in what way we participate in and cooperate with God's work of repentance in us. Now, it's probably good that this should sound wrong to Christian ears. We Lutherans very diligently guard the gospel of divine grace and mercy from the intrusion of human works that lead poor sinners to trust in themselves more than in Jesus. So especially to us, we hear that we participate and cooperate in repentance and faith, and it sounds like we're not very Lutheran. It sounds like we're denying the lesson we learned last week. We considered the word monergism. Monergism means worked by one. Our repentance is not worked by some natural strength in us. Our repentance is worked by God. Turn us Unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned, says Jeremiah in Lamentations 5. It is the Lord God who turns us. He does all the work in rescuing the lost. This was last week. Our only contribution in getting found is being lost. The getting found part is entirely in the mercy of God. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He who alone is credited with the seeking is alone praised for the saving. Cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved, the psalmist sings. And when we consider how we participate, participate therefore, and even cooperate in God's work of faith in us, we're not therefore talking about getting saved. We're talking about being saved. We're talking about the new desires and new perspective that God gives to us when he calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He doesn't save us by turning us into a damnable dead thing, into a blessed dead thing. He gives us life. He doesn't work repentance in us as though carving a rock or a block of wood inanimate objects that don't care? No. As we learned with the prodigal son's willful rebellion, we see that repentance is not merely a passive activity that we experience, as it may have seemed with the sheep and the coin. No, it is an activity that God works in us. We see a little bit more drama in that story, right? That which begins with acknowledgement and regret ends with joy and feasting. Just as we are not lost and condemned sinners against our will, so we are not saved against our will. We're not merely acted upon. We are renewed. And we are daily being renewed. Conformed into the image of God's Son who saved us. We are not merely acted upon. Because God works a new will in our hearts. 
that gives us activity. He works the will to be saved. He creates in us the will and the desire to receive mercy and know mercy and praise mercy. This is the will and desire that Jesus appeals to in our gospel text this morning when he tells us to show mercy. He who receives good measure gives good measure because good measure is always overflowing. St. Paul says that all creation groans and labor pangs until now, waiting for the revelation of the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, if the rocks and blocks of wood that have not sinned groan for our liberty, should not we who are liberated from our own sinful corruption not groan much more? Should we not learn to express this longing for freedom with more articulate and active expectation than the birds and the leaves? Creation, after all, was subjected unwillingly. We were subjected to futility and death because of our fallen will, our evil desires and idolatry. Now that the true God has called us back by pure divine kindness, should he not also teach us to express the hope of our salvation? The same Holy Spirit who teaches us to believe also teaches us to groan. We groan. We are sinners. Forgiven sinners still sin. But forgiven sinners are sick of sinning. That's why we groan. We groan for mercy. We need it and love it. That's why we show it. Again, to repeat the point, we receive the hope of salvation by receiving mercy. We express the hope of salvation by being merciful. Jesus persuades us to be merciful by persuading us to receive mercy. Jesus persuades. The gospel convinces. Jesus said during the Easter season that the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, would convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, we are convinced. The Word of God engages our minds and persuades us. It gives us something to occupy our meditation and thoughts. To persuade somebody of something, you must make an appeal that that person understands. In order for the gospel to save you, I suppose you have to think about it, right? For this reason, people suppose that our thinking plays some role in our getting saved, but it doesn't. St. Paul tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, but opposes them. He's, they're contrary to his way of thinking. Now consider with these words of Isaiah chapter 1, how God teaches us to employ our reason, our thinking. He says, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. See how God appeals to human reason? He defies human reason. He mocks human reason and forces human reason to submit to mercy. He invites us to reason with him. 
to reason together as though we were solving some problem together. But then he himself provides the one and only solution that our reason plays no part in. He invites us to reason together in order to teach us what little role our reason is allowed to play. He teaches that only faith in his mercy plays any role at all. Believe this. Though your sins stain you, I will cleanse and forgive you. What contribution does reason play here? By this we learn that the old Adam must die. He contributes nothing. Jesus says we must be born again. We must die and rise by the new birth of water and the word that unites us to the death and resurrection of Christ, who gave himself for our sins. This is how God persuades us. The appeal and persuasion of the gospel always address our need for what only Jesus can give. It never flatters either our reason or some spark of goodwill in us. It only reveals the reason-defying reason of God. It is what he calls his mercy. Man has free will, or what might be called free will, when it comes to -to day-to-day earthly matters, but that's it. When it comes to the things of God, his will is totally turned inward and corrupt. Our wills are bound by nature if there is any slavery or any, any freedom there, enslaved to sin and hatred of God. And so our free will in regard to things that, that are of this creation is free will in regard to things that have been subjected to futility. But God's will is good. And his will is not futile. It is effective and powerful. He reveals his will by teaching us mercy. He sets us free by giving us the unnatural desire to know and accept mercy. I say unnatural because the desire to know and accept God's mercy is a desire that only God can work in us And yet God created all things, and so it's not unnatural, it's supernatural. And it gives us authority over all things natural, all things created, even when by outward appearances they act against us. And we must suffer much. And yet in this suffering, God teaches us to rely on mercy and to love mercy. So pardon the long introduction to the main point of our text this morning. Mercy is such a worthy theme to review, though. Last week, we considered how Jesus perfects the mercy we need. And this week, we consider the mercy we are to imitate so that we might be perfected in him. Now, it is no less supernatural, the mercy we are to imitate. And by this, we know that we have passed from death into life if we love the brethren. We love the brethren by having mercy, by overlooking one another's trespasses against us, by seeking the good of one another, 
rather than simply seeking the justice that we are so committed to. God teaches us to be committed to justice from a very different angle. We become brethren of God's own son by nothing we contribute, by no justice that we participate in. So why should we expect so much from each other? We should not, why should we not do for each other what Jesus has done for us? Jesus tells us to be merciful. But notice he does not say, be merciful as I also am merciful. No, he says, be merciful as your father is merciful. Not even my father, but your father. And with this, we see and learn what mercy Jesus shows only in the context where this mercy is revealed. We see it in the context of the father sending his son to reveal mercy by becoming one with our human nature, submitting himself unto the requirements of the law, obeying it perfectly in perfect fear, love, and trust toward God and compassion and kindness and patience toward every man. And then bearing all God's judgment against us and being condemned for all our sins, although he himself was innocent. The Father who is reconciled to you through the blood of his Son, whom he sent to do all of this, you are to be merciful as he is merciful. And for this reason, Jesus says, your Father. It would be a burdensome command indeed if Jesus told you to be merciful, as merciful as somebody else's Father. But he tells you to be as merciful as your Father. And that's why Jesus tells us to mimic the Father's mercy. He is telling us not to see mercy as Jesus indulging sinners and turning a blind eye to our rebellion, as though that's what Jesus was doing. No. By telling us to mimic his Father's mercy, Jesus is teaching us not to imagine some sort of mercy that eliminates judgment, but mercy that depends on judgment. Mercy that agrees with judgment. Mercy that takes all God's judgment and says, Amen. Mercy that bears all condemnation and says, Father, forgive them. God judges our sin and he is right to judge it. God condemns our sin and he is right to condemn it. We confess this every single Sunday. Our sins offend God. We have deserved God's temporal and eternal punishment. And yet we appeal not to indulgence, or not to a faraway concept of mercy, we appeal to what has been brought near to us and what is placed in our mouths with the body and blood of God. Every Sunday we receive it. We appeal to the boundless mercy of the Father by appealing to the bitter, innocent suffering and death of His Son. That's why He's gracious and merciful to us. He takes judgment seriously and he takes condemnation seriously. And if we are to be imitators of God our Father, we must too. The mercy that Jesus tells us to have is mercy that agrees with God's judgment 
It is mercy that is understood, therefore, only by penitent sinners who are heartily sorry for their own sins. So far from mercy requiring us to lay aside judgment and condemnation, the mercy Jesus tells us to have is mercy that keeps both judgment and condemnation always very close to our heart. Because this is what it means to live in repentance. This is what it means to sigh and groan over the exhausting task as justified sinners still contending with sin. We are always keeping judgment and condemnation in mind so that we might see in Christ where judgment and condemnation were turned into mercy toward us. And this is actually what makes this command of our Lord Jesus so hard. He teaches us to agree with God's judgments. He teaches us to agree with God's condemnation. And we delight, according to the inner man, in the law of God. And then we see people breaking the law of God. And we see that it hurts us, it offends us, it bothers us. We know that God is right, and they should too. This is the great difficulty. It is easy when we are the ones who need mercy, perhaps, by the help of God's Spirit, to synthesize and reconcile God's judgment and condemnation with the forgiveness that we need. But we must rely on the same Spirit to synthesize and reconcile our own judgment and our own condemnation of other people's behavior with the forgiveness that they need. And yet the same Spirit who groans in us with sighs to heaven also groans in us and works in us to be so merciful. It is a burden because we see what is wrong. But Jesus said to us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And by this he makes his Father our Father. But he follows, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This yoke, this burden, this command, we find here where Jesus says, be merciful. But we know that it is light because we know that it is his burden. He took our burden, and he gives us his burden. He takes our sins and then teaches us to share the burden which he himself had when he came to bear our sins. He was as merciful as his father. That's how we know his father as our father. And we agree with God. We agree with his judgment, his condemnation, and we agree with his forgiveness because we have seen what Jesus accomplished when he agreed as well. We are disciples of Jesus. 
And as disciples of Jesus, we are not above our teacher. We must be made like him in every way. And so in his light, we see light. In his mercy, we find the ability to show mercy to one another, to forgive, and to use what we must judge and to use what we must condemn always in sight and hope and expectation of forgiveness. That the liberty and glory of our own brother might be revealed. For we are not blinded, neither to the Father's judgment nor to the Father's mercy. We see our plank every day, and we must as often as we will delight in the forgiveness of sins. And we look for our own bodies to be redeemed from every temptation, every resentment, and every sin. For I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. I would like to conclude by speaking of a glory that was revealed in Joseph, whose story we all know quite well. How he was sold into slavery after being despised and envied by his brothers. How he was treated shamefully and yet patiently waited on God to exalt him in due time. How he was brought to rule Egypt underneath only the king. And how many people were saved because he managed famine as well as bounty, as only God could teach him how. And yet that is not the height of Joseph's glory. Although he was placed in a situation to rule as God in Egypt. The height of his glory is when he asks whether he truly is in the place of God. Because in his heart he knows that whatever mercy he shows will never measure up to the mercy that God has shown him. And you know that too. The glory that will be revealed in any of us consists in the glory that Jesus reveals in himself when he bears our sin, rises from the dead, and gives us peace with his Father and our Father. And when he tells us to be as merciful as our Father in heaven, he is teaching us to cling to the forgiveness of our sins and to submit all judgment and condemnation to this great hope which even creation longs to see accomplished. How much more shall we? And we do. The greatest glory you will experience here on earth is that you might forgive the sins of those who have sinned against you. That you might participate and cooperate with this mercy that surpasses all understanding. And so share with one another the peace that fills our hearts. This is the result of God's mercy toward us. And this is what we hope for when we press toward the same and praise God for the mercy he has shown. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.